Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here uh, came to a great public recognition through his novel, Neuromancer. Uh, his other books include Count Zero, Mona Lisa Overdrive, Burning Chrome, Virtual Life, All Tomorrow's Parties, and his new novel called Pattern Recognition. He's also been involved in uh, films and uh, television in many ways. He is also the gentleman who coined the phrase cyberspace, and his books have been both prescient uh, examinations of our culture and very thoughtful examinations of who we are in our time, as well as compelling books. Pattern Language is a uh, splendid story. Will you please welcome William Gibson to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming out on the road. Uh, is, uh, is your life as a, as a writer normally very quiet and serene? Very, very quiet. I, I, I work in a basement, and I go out and have lunch and look at live humans, and then I go back and work some more. <laughs> <laughs> have dinner with my family and go to sleep and cycle through it. But every three years, I come out and do this. And, but you seem to, uh, to thrive on that. I mean, you understand that this is sort of a going out in public is, is kind of a brief experience. It's a way to see your readers. And does it, is it an energizing experience? Is it one you, you thrill to do? Well, if you, if you relax and let it happen, it, it, it can be energizing. But if you resist it, it, it's, it can be devastating. I know people who can't. I know writers who just can't do this. They keep doing it and it just kills them and it it doesn't bother me. But I, I've learned to just sort of go with it. And it's good. <laughs> what, uh, what kind of stories do you tell your children at night? What do you choose to read to them? Well, seeing as how they're 25 and 20. <laughs> well, then let's move back a bit in time. Well, <clears throat> We actually had a we we I had a very rich culture of uh, family uniquely family storytelling going on when my when my kids were little I I used to tell my daughter this endless saga about a character called the boneless baron of beef <laughs> <laughs> because there was a butcher shop in our neighborhood that had a, a permanent sign up that said boneless baron of beef and every time I'd walk by I'd imagine this guy <laughs> and he was French and, and just completely fluid and I told her that he lived in in the bottom drawer of a very very elaborate chest of drawers in in his castle and it just sort of he unfolded from there and it went on for years how did it end it's still going on, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes if she has a bad day, I, I, you know, resurrect the Baron, the boneless Baron of beef. Yes. Which, which must have, uh, d did it have any kind of properties of being a cyborg? No, it was more like a Bunuel film than science fiction. <laughs> it has, uh, it also has quality of, of one of the writers who I sense has been an influence in your life, uh, that of Borges. It's yeah. I suppose it's 
Borgesian in that, in that it's endless. <laughs> <laughs> Telling stories to your children get, gets you into like circular time and the doctrine of the eternal return, and <laughs> all of that. And, and your kids kept this straight, or they ask you questions about these, uh, these phenomena? No, they just lay there looking stunned. <laughs> <laughs> and if they didn't go to sleep, I told them another one. <laughs> and then would you go back down to your, uh, in, into your writing room and say, I've got to put this down, or was it just a, a story that came stream of consciousness to you as you were telling it? No, oh, it, was, it was total improv. It, w- it was bedtime, bedtime story improv. But my daughter, not my son so much, but my daughter picked that up. And, and I think she sort of learned how to do that. And I, I don't know what effect it's going to have on her, but she's got that going on. Like she knows that st- you don't make stories up, you just sort of get out of their way and let them happen. Is that how you, you find uh, pattern recognition came into existence? That's how everything I've ever done has has come into existence. If if the guy who's talking to you now wrote a story, it would be a very bad story. <laughs> uh, I have to turn up every day and wait for the guy who actually writes the stories <laughs> to check in. <laughs> and he's pretty good at it, but he's he's really flaky. And he won't always turn up, but so, you know, the best I can do is just be there every day in case he comes online and, and the story starts happening. And do you get along with this guy who shows up sometimes or not? No, not entirely. He's, he's uh, frequently, like, too weird. I, I'm kind of like, like, no, don't, don't say that. <laughs> I don't like the way this is going. I'm serious though. It's not not like channeling, right? It's not. It's nothing like that. It's that. It's sort of like E.M. Forster said that a novelist who was in control of his characters wasn't really doing his job. And I read that when I was in college and took it took it right to heart. And and I've felt that way ever since. That the process has to be out of my conscious control in order to produced the stuff that experiences taught me other people most enjoy. When you, when you are uh, traveling and looking out a window and keeping notes and you, you see something, for instance, you talk about the Children's Crusade of Camden Town, where the initial part of your novel is, is set. Uh, you've spent some time clearly in London. You've watched the, the people go back and forth. Uh, the phrase Children's Crusade, uh, the idea of young people flowing back and forth in this street of London. How did that image come to you? Well, I had seen them flow back and forth in that street countless times over the past 15 or 20 years, and it had never occurred to me to think of it as the Children's Crusade until I was writing a description of that in in the book, and I suddenly saw it as that. I think it probably had something to do with having read Peter Aykroyd's wonderful book, London, The Biography. I don't think he uses that phrase, but some, something about his description, his descriptions of, 
of London in the 15th and 16th centuries. That the streets just jammed, this kind of Hogarthian mass. So I have somehow pulled that pulled that phrase out. It's 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 descriptive, and and throughout the book you deal with issues of, is it conspiracy or is it coincidence? Uh, there seems to be uh, room and necessity of both in our lives. Well, that psychological term apophenia, which I had never run across before I wrote this book, and like right now I couldn't tell you where where I found it, that which is the perception of patterns the perception of meaning where there is no meaning, or the perception of significance where there isn't necessarily significance, was very became very important to me when I was writing this book because I, I had started looking at pattern recognition as the essential human activity, the thing that distinguishes us from almost all of the other critters on this planet and which we do apparently better than any other critter on the planet. As far as we know. As far as we know. So the idea that there was an inherent potential flaw in that fascinated me. The, the idea that if we're so good at it, we're also vulnerable to seeing patterns that aren't there and that that might be part and parcel of being human. But there's also a, uh, uh, for instance, Neuromancer, when you were working on that book, uh, you were a ways into it, and you went to see Blade Runner, a movie that uh, sort of did not do well at the time. And you walked in, and you looked at the movie, and you saw the art design of the, of the film, and were concerned that your book, it was sort of somehow transcending your book in a way, which it did not, but that there was something going on in the communal culture uh, that suggested that somebody in Hollywood be imagining a set design that looked like that, a way of life in the future, and that Neuromancer was also had that same kind of a feel. Uh, I mean, how do you think that kind of uh, coincidence comes about? Well, I actually, I, I fled the theater virtu virtually in tears about 20 minutes into Blade Runner, the in its initial theatrical release because it was it was as though really Scott had been photographing the inside of my forehead Sorry. except except that it it looked so much cooler like, <laughs> like he had bigger budgets and more more people more people to work more people to work on it years later like i think like 15 15 or 16 years later i wound up having a really nice one-on-one -on -one lunch with Ridley Scott, and we talk, were talking about mutual mutual influences and, and sources and, and material, and we had a lot in common, and probably the thing we had most in common were those, those incredibly styling French sci-fi comics that were coming out in the 80s, which I got to see here in heavy metal, and he had gotten to see in London in Metal Ulant in in the original. And I, I was never a fan of those as comics per se, or much of a comics fan, but they just looked so cool. And so I would 
go in, I would be in the corner store and there'd be this really embarrassingly klutzy looking American science fiction magazine next to this this super hip French stuff. And whenever I'd see the super hip French stuff, I'd think, what if there was like prose science fiction that was arguably that cool? <laughs> and the thing about comic books is that they also didn't need a big budget, I suppose. Well, if they're doing the inside of people's foreheads. Yeah, that's true. With with comics, you just need a guy who can draw. And and that's the I think probably the interesting thing about about comics is that is that you you can do massive widescreen cinema in effect without having to have that big budget. And that's also one of the advantages of prose. Your uh, your character case uh, passes judgment on people's logos as part of her job, uh, and she develops she's she has a logophobia uh, where she gets a physical illness, physical reaction to certain logos that she doesn't like, in particular the Michelin Man, uh, and. This this uh, this plays a role in in the, in the book. Uh, is there something about our culture that of of logos and of images and of uh, the corporate energy behind it that that you wanted to take on that you wanted to try to examine uh, the idea of marketing creating campaigns that were often more interesting than the products and themselves the books or the movies themselves. Well, I've having heard from other people o over the last. 20 years that we live in a post-industrial society. I wanted to find, if that is in fact the case, uh, and it seems like the, the stuff we, the stuff we buy is increasingly made in, in parts of the world that are, are, are arguably industrial and recently industrial. If that being, if that in fact is the case, I wanted to find out what it was that we do if this is post-industrial. And the two things I figured out that we do is we do, we do branding and we sell our old stuff on eBay. Cases, <laughs> cases, uh, uh, peculiar sensitivity, like, like, you know, going into anaphy going into anaphylactic shock if she sees anything by Tommy Hilfiger. <laughs> it's, it's that, that's an exaggeration, I think, of a, a subclinical state that's active in all of us. <laughs> I think we're all, we all have like, like minor... Uh, but there are some who swoon when they see Gucci. Well, that's right. I mean, I mean that's the, the flip. That, that's the flip side of it. I stayed away from Gucci and Prada in, in this book because... Those are ones that I actually have kind of a semi-phobic reaction to myself, so I, I didn't want to get personal. <laughs> so I kind of took took Tommy and the Michelin Man at, at random, and the, particularly the Michelin Man, because I think most people think of the Michelin Man as a jolly, benevolent figure. So Related to the Pillsbury Doughboy. Yeah, it's like his French uncle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
But actually, if you go back and you look at the, I discovered in my research for this book that the original Michelin Man is deeply creepy. <laughs> the very early Michelin Man had a had a monocle and that cigarette dangling out of his mouth, and he looked looked like just like debauched. <laughs> So, so somehow they, they stripped him of that looseness and moved him onto something a little more pneumatic and, you know, robust, like he has good bistro meals every day. Yeah, I think it's a, it was kind of, they, they, they Disneyfied him, probably, after, they probably did it in the, in the wake of, of the Disney cartoons. You uh, uh, keep a, a weblog uh, from time to time. People go and read your, your thoughts, and... I was reading it the other day and was curious to see, to, and, and was fascinated to read a speech that you put on that you'd given in Vancouver to an art museum about the cyborg. And you tell the story of a man named Vannevar Bush, who imagined, in a way, the personal computer, but did not know how to explain it. Uh, he, was, he didn't have the terms. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about this idea of steam engine time. Oh. Vannevar, Vannevar Bush was the man who more or less invented what we think of as the military-industrial complex. For, he did it at the behest of Franklin Roosevelt. And during, during World War II, he was one of the most powerful people in this country, and he really affect, he's an almost unknown figure who affected, who like sort of produced a lot of the world we live we live in today. Really, really interesting, interesting guy to look up. And he envisioned something that he called the Mimex, which was in effect a personal computer, but more crucially he, he envisioned hypertext and in a sense the internet, because he imagined the these hypertext libraries as, as being linked. But he had no technology that would enable him to see what, how we were going to do that. So in Bush's vision, there are these literal desktops, which are like oak desks with frosted glass tops and projected through the bottom is like a desktop as as we know it, but he had to do this fantastically funny kind of Jules Verne stretch where he said that there was something called dry photography and there was a lot of clockwork in these desks and, and spools of film connecting the desks. And it's, it, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, he got, he got the idea right, but he couldn't think of, even though he knew, given his position, he would, he would have known as much about uh, the emerging technology, the emerging secret technology of electronic computers as anyone in the world. He would have known all about what we were doing to crack the German Enigma codes, which is, in effect, we were inventing electronic computers. And he never thought of applying that to, to the MIMAX. And, and as I said in that speech, the reason he couldn't do that is because steam engine time hadn't emerged. And steam engine time is something they teach you about traditionally in the, the subculture of becoming a science fiction writer. And that's where I first heard, heard this phrase. And, and it's, it's the idea that, that 
everything we needed to make a steam engine had been around for a long, long time, for thousands of years. The Greeks and the Romans had little toys that were in effect steam engines and demonstrated how a steam engine operated. You lit that, you put the water in, you lit the candle, five minutes later the thing was whirling around, making a teapot whistle and demonstrating how the energy could be produced this way and transformed into to motion and power. Nobody tried to do anything with it until a few hundred years ago. Suddenly, all over the, apparently all over Europe, these guys said, damn, I'm going <laughs> to do this. And it, it just like, bang. And there's no real explanation for why, why that happened. And I Damon Knight, I think the writer who actually coined the phrase steam engine time, wrote, wrote an essay about that. And I think his point was the unpredictability of the emergence of new technologies. And part of the, one of the new technologies that's evolved, uh, and you see all of us as being a cyborg, is that the internet with its neuron flow from uh, the electrons of the screen into our eyes becomes part of who we are. They become extensions. It's a, we are part human, part machine mm -hmm. now, and connected in ways that we never expected to be with, with other people. Well, yes, and that's probably one of, to the extent that I'm, I, to the extent that I am writing about technology and how it affects us and how it changes things, I'm starting to think that that's been one of, one of my central, one of my central points. Um, I like I often think about I think about the flying car that my father never got that I saw him promised on TV, <laughs> in these black and white newsreels. The flying car is coming to your town. Your fa your father will have one, and. And they like great, you know. They never showed it taking off, but they showed it kind of rumbling, rumbling down these these runways. And about I don't know, in the '80s, sort of in the, in the late mid to late '80s, I was hauled all over the planet by by various governments and to go to virtual reality festivals. Uh, where and all the guys I'd meet who were in virtual reality, all it seemed to me wanted to be the man who invented television. That's what they were shooting for, like twenty years down the road. None of them, none of them became that because the virtual reality that they were being, that they were selling, which was the pretty girl with the big gauntlets and the, the bug-eyed goggles, instantly joined the flying car. In the the museum of kind of kind of quaint technology, consumer technology that nobody was ever going to get. And the reason that happened is that we already have it. We're already there. We just don't we just don't realize it. But that's what kept people from going out and buying those those gloves and goggles. Is that if you're paying enough if you're paying enough attention to your computer monitor, you don't need these these kind of cootie-infested things around your head. It was actually, they talked about the cootie factor, the people who, the people who fail to become 
the men who invented, men and women who invented television afterwards when I said, well, it didn't happen. What do you think it was? And they said, it was the cootie factor. Nobody wanted to, like, put on somebody else's VR helmet. <laughs> Fear of contagion. I mean, you know, but it's amazing that libraries haven't closed down. You know, people borrowing books that other people have had who knows where in their houses. Yeah, but those are eye tracks. You can't, you can't get anything from other people's eye tracks. <laughs> Little traces that, that are invisible traces on the page. The, uh, when you, when you uh, sat down uh, and thought about pattern recognition, there are a number of uh, uh, icons that, that come up. Uh, there's the Curtis Calculating Machine. Uh, which is being sold from a trunk in Soho. There are other kinds of brand name issues that come up. Uh, there's a wonderful mantra uh, where Case, when she gets into a stuck pattern in her head, says, I took a duck at 250 miles an hour through the windshield. Uh, I mean, these, these wonderful kind of catchphrases and images uh, populate your book and give it uh, uh, sort of a resonance that seems to go beyond the book itself into your own experience. Well, each of those each of those aspects of the book bears some sort of one-on-one -on -one relationship to something I've encountered in in my life and often in my life during the time that I, that I'm writing the book. The the duck in the face mantra came from a story that a friend of mine who's who's been an airline pilot for years told told me about what what happens when you get a, a a duck you're taking you're climbing out of Sioux City and a duck hits the windshield of your of your airplane and it was just this horrific story of this friend of his who liked to windshield him but the windshield imploded and glass was driven into the guy's eye and he the cockpit became a hurricane, and he ma he managed to land it safely, and he recovered and went on to fly with like slivers of glass in his eye. But it, but this phrase that my friend has, of, you know, he took a duck in the face at 116 knots, just <laughs> jumped out at jumped out at me, and when, and because I had this character, had this 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 tonality to her personality that, that sort of had a kind of a kind of OCD feeling to it. it somehow it seemed right that she would have a what, what do you mean OCD feeling obsessive compulsive disorder <laughs> yeah, so I, I wanted the the mantra to seem uh, somewhat com I wanted it to be effective and calm her down but I also wanted it to seem a, a, I wanted it to be obsessive so there are times in the book when she can't not say it out loud, and the other characters go, "What?" <laughs> the uh, w when you you deal with email correspondence uh, in in the book and websites and uh, people trying to connect in various places of of the world. How did you uh, imagine the continuity structure of the story? How did you um, because one of the aspects of email and websites is it. And, and visiting them is that our live and our times become kind of fragmented and they jump from one place to another. Uh, how as a writer do you manage to uh, think about those issues and, and maintain a narrative through, uh, through line of, of your story? What kind of choices do you make? Well, I had one of the parameters I, I set for this book 
was it that I would have only a single viewpoint character, which is actually something I haven't done before, that you would always be in her point of view and you'd never cut away to that, cut away from that to the point of view of another character. And I found that atemporal quality to the internet life really, really handy because I could stay in her fictional narrative real time and yet when I needed to to break that break that up for the you know just for the for the sake of of interest even I could have her get online and at that moment realistically all of this interesting correspondence would arrive <laughs> which is very much like what happens in real life but as a as a literary con convenience it's fabulous and the idea of uh, of a mirror worlds of worlds that are similar but but different. Uh, for instance, you describe England as as a country that, like Japan, made so many of its own things, its own items, that its window panes look different, its teapots are different. Not to mention its electrical system, that the way <laughs> pens are, its sugar packets. Uh, it's it's kind of like our world, but it's different. And for a long time, it remained insular. Yet uh, nowadays, countries are importing objects, culture from from elsewhere. It's, uh, will that kind of mirror quality be maintained? It seems to be going away and uh, that causes me causes me some sorrow because the the Europe the Europe that I see now when I go there is not really the Europe that I saw 20 years ago but that's just change and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't have change without loss and you can't have new things without change. William Gibson, author of Pattern Recognition, Neuromancer and so many other books and stories. Uh, my name is Hedge Thompson. Thanks to Mike Greensill at the keyboard, Mitchell Holman at the controls, produced by Brian Vanneman. We're at WCL.org. We'll be back next week. Safe journey. Thank you very much. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.